You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As I look at you, I'm wondering this question from your own experience. Have you ever seen a celebrity in Miami? A celebrity could be defined as somebody who is simply famous. Famous for any number of things. Perhaps a famous author, a famous comedian, famous athlete. Famous social media influencer, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, A famous actor or actress. I think about how excited Miami as a whole was to have Lionel Messi come to Miami. As if we needed any more validation that we're awesome. Messi proved it. But it's the reality of this sense of like when you see somebody who's so well known in your space, it it feels disorienting and it feels in some sense validating. They're they're living in your city. Your city's worth living in. They're driving on your roads. Your roads are for average people and exceptional people. They're shopping in your stores not just for the rich and famous, but for the average and common. How excited were we when we saw Lionel Messi shopping in Publix? Yeah, he was. Just an average guy, probably going to stand in line soon after that picture was taken to buy himself a Publix son. And then he truly had arrived. But that idea of seeing somebody famous is something kind of a bit captivating. Uh, For 10 years, my wife and I, with our kids, lived in Los Angeles. First, for me to attend seminary, and after that, to serve full-time in ministry. During that time, I was a student ministries pastor, pastoring hundreds of teenagers, during which time my own younger sister, who's younger than I was by 16 years, or younger than I am, rather, by 16 years, she would visit me occasionally and really hope that I would take her around L.A. with the possibility that we could get celebrity sightings. And so I hoped to deliver, but it wasn't like I knew where they were going to be. But one time I took one of the teenagers that I was a pastor to, plus my sister and her friend who came with her to visit from South Carolina to Los Angeles. And we were on the infamous Rodeo Drive going in shops that we could only but look at, not afford to buy anything. And from downstairs, from upstairs rather, coming down to the main floor of this one shop we're in, lo and behold, who walks down but Lakers legend Magic Johnson. Now, that might be lost on some of you because of your age, but it wasn't lost on her. And she was just like beside herself. It was her first celebrity sighting. And even the teenager that I had with me, he was a baller. He loved basketball and he didn't know what to do. And over to the side was this attendant who could see three very excited teenagers at the sighting of the celebrity wanting to do something to capture the moment. And so she offered little perfume sample papers that you would spray perfume on to smell if you like it. She offered to the three of them that little perfume sample piece of paper to then go take it to Magic Johnson and have him sign it. And they eagerly did so. And he very kindly, quickly signed it and went on his way. 
these moments captivate us because we want to know what it would be like to see somebody so well-known by others, but so unknown to us in daily experience. There's entire publishing industries based around the sighting of well-known people, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, as the old TV show used to be called. From J.K. Rowling, this famous author who came from sort of rags to riches and then published the Harry Potter series to someone like Lionel Messi to somebody who's famous in YouTube world with the most subscribers like Mr. Beast. Doesn't seem like it matters the age. Everybody in their demographic has somebody they would wonder what it'd be like to see. And if they saw them, what would they do once they could be with them? But why is this? Well, it's because in some sense, it's when the common sees the uncommon, when the average sees the exceptional, when the unknown sees the famous. It's jarring. And it's exactly what makes Christmas and all the story of it so captivating. It's not simply the famous, it's the infamous. It's not simply the exceptional, it's the extravagant. It's not simply the uncommon, it's simply the remarkable divine that is seen. Doesn't simply shop in our stores, drive in our roads, and live in our city. He actually comes to us in our world, the world that he created himself. And it's captivating. The story of Jesus, God's son. Christmas is more about an event to be commemorated if we read it biblically and understand it accurately than simply a season to be appreciated. That's not some low-key way to kind of shame you for not enjoying the season. Friend, I enjoy the season. And you don't even have to be religious to enjoy the season. Some of you may be here are not religious. You're just simply polite. And that's even why it explains why you're here. And I commend you for your kindness to your family or friends. But you can enjoy the season even if you have no interest in Jesus. You can enjoy simply the idea of general kindness, of generosity, people taking their money and spending it on other people, and times where we do fun gatherings and office parties and times of family reunions and special meals, even what's coming tonight for many of your households. Christmas, though, is more than simply a season to get perhaps a few days off of work and a few more reps with family. Christmas is a chance for us historically to stop and stare at the remarkable reality that God came to us. And the implications of that. Jesus coming into this world as a man changed everything. All of human history has been waiting for God to keep his word. God made a promise in the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3, and seemingly it looks like throughout history forgot it, misplaced the promise as if it was somehow lost in his spiritual wallet and did not know where it was. But no, God knew where it was the entire time, and at the appointed time, the Scripture says, he sent his son. The right time in surprising ways to accomplish the right purpose. What we see in Genesis 3 is then fulfilled as it comes crashing onto the shore of humanity in Matthew 1. And yet for many of us, 
Jesus' coming is amazing, believed in, appreciated, but then eventually put away on our daily lives, like the elf on the shelf. He's adorable. You're not sure if you can find him. He's somewhere to be found. Once you do, you might tell others where you can find him, but then you go back to your normal routine, your daily life. But let's just stop for a second and consider. When Jesus began to teach publicly, his teaching was the most profound thing anyone had ever said, and his claims were the most outrageous ever worded if they're not actually true, but they turn out to be true. Consider Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is basically saying everything that God has said through the prophets, through the priests, through the kings, everything that God has said in his word that none of you have perfectly obeyed, Jesus is like, I'm here to do it. That's quite a claim. Later on in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, he would say, Come to me, all who, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So not only is he seemingly ethically impressive, he's also personally compassionate. Inviting people who are struggling, inviting people who are burdened to come to him, that they will find with him one who is receptive, one who is compassionate. He goes on in John chapter 2, it says, in verse 19, and then again in verse 21 and 22, it says, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John goes on to explain he was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now we move from he's ethically impressive to he's personally compassionate to he's supernaturally powerful. This is so different than our experience. Think about the reality of this. If you're having surgery tomorrow, what are you doing? You're praying today and tomorrow, and you're asking everybody else to please help pray for you. Because you cannot do what only Jesus can do. He would then, in John 11, say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus moves from instructing about himself to inviting others to respond. Since the coming, since his coming rather, Jesus has had an indelible act on society, an indelible impact. Yale historian Jaroslav Pelikan wrote the following, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, that might include some of you here today, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some type of some sort of super magnet to pull out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left, end quote. What's so remarkable is the implication of the life of Jesus since the life of Jesus. Uh, consider five examples briefly by way of introduction of how Jesus changed the world. First of all, children. Uh, 
the sounds you even hear in the room here. Those children around us. Those children gathered at our feet on Christmas morning. Those children sitting over in the room next door in children's ministry. Those children, in the ancient world, children were routinely left to die of exposure, particularly if they were of the wrong gender. They were often sold into slavery. Jesus' treatment of and teachings about children led to the forbidding of such practices as well as orphanages being created and godparents actually being introduced. A Norwegian scholar named Bach wrote a study of this impact appropriately titled, When Children Became People, subtitled, The Birth of Childhood in Early Christianity. Second, how Jesus changed the world, education. The very fact that you're able to read traces its way back oftentimes, if not almost every time, to the significance of the impact of Christianity from the teachings of Jesus. You're like, how is that even true? A love of learning led to monasteries, which became the cradle for academic studies. Universities such as Cambridge, Oxford, and Harvard, original universities both in England and the United States, all began as Jesus-influenced efforts to love God with all of one's mind. That's not typical we think of today those universities. The first legislation to publicly fund education in the United States colonies was called, quote, the Old Deluder Satan Act, end quote. Under the notion that God does not want any child ignorant, the ancient world loved education but tended to reserve it only for the rich and the elite. The notion that every child and every person bore God's image helped fuel the move for universal literacy. The Bible being put into a language people could read for themselves was the means by which people began to read overall. Third, compassion. Jesus had a universal concern for those who suffered that transcended the rules of the ancient world. His compassion for the poor and the sick led to institutions for lepers. The institutions for lepers, you know what those were the founding beginnings of? Hospitals. Think about that. Every time you get into an emergency moment, what do you do? You call 911 or you just go ahead and bypass the phone call and you go ahead and drive to the location, the hospital. Historians, non-religious, atheistic historians will acknowledge where that traces its way back to. The Council of Nyssa decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there must be a hospice, which was known as a place for the caring of the sick and the poor. That's why even today, hospitals have names like the Good Samaritan or Good Shepherd. They were the world's first voluntary charitable institutions. A fourth, the very practice of forgiveness. In the ancient world, virtue meant rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. Think of a well-known person in history like Genghis Khan in Asia. In history of the world, he's quoted as saying, quote, the greatest enjoyment of a man is to overcome his enemies, drive them before him, and snatch what they have to see the people to whom they are dear with their faces bathed in tears to ride their horses, to squeeze in his arms their daughters and women, end quote. And yet Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies, turning the other cheek, and going next to mouth for another has framed how today most people reference how they should treat others and how they should want to be treated by others. 
Where did that very concept come from? Last, but much more could be given, humanitarian reform. Jesus accepted, loved, and included those who are often rejected. Jesus' inclusion of women into the religious community meant that women overwhelmingly came and responded. Additionally, slaves, up to a third of which was a part of the ancient population, would wander knowingly into a church fellowship and at times even have the slave owner wash their feet in the early years of the church rather than beat them. One ancient text instructed bishops to not interrupt worship to greet a wealthy tender, but to sit on the floor to welcome the poor. The apostle Paul, one of Jesus' earliest disciples, would say, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. This is how Jesus has changed the world. But the question that you and I have to consider for ourselves today is how has Jesus changed your life? Has he? Why or why not? Well, this takes us to our text this morning, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew introducing the arrival of Jesus Luke, of course, gives even more details. Just sort of looking at the text by way of introduction, verse 18 of Matthew 1 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But jumping to the text I want you to look at, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. If you have a Bible, if you don't, you can simply listen. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, understandably, this is a radical text for a lot of reasons. Let's just lay a few brief ones. Number one, Matthew's actually citing Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah, he's not living at this time. Isaiah has not lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he spoke prophetically of how God would show up. That's radical. I mean, I can't even tell you what tomorrow's weather's going to be like. And he's saying hundreds of years at a time, led by the Holy Spirit to write this, here is how God is going to show up. That's crazy observation, no one. Crazy observation, too, is how it's going to be described. He says he's going to be born of a virgin. You're like, that is humanly impossible. To which Matthew, Isaiah, and everybody else are like, I know. That's kind of the point. Like, no, no, you understand, if we can't recreate it in a lab, scientifically, then it does not stand the test of possibility. Because unless we can recreate it scientifically, it cannot be actually possible. So it must be some myth. This is what some have proposed. But there are enough events and incidents and scenarios throughout history that have proven that thesis is not true. How much inexplainable events and scenarios have taken place that are beyond human explanation. And yet here is a moment in this text where it says, he will be born of a virgin. How does a woman who's never had sexual relationships with a man give birth to a baby? Because... She is, as the scripture describes, conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
But the part I actually want us to focus on is not the historical prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 and not the miracle of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. It's what's actually said next. They shall call his name Emmanuel. I want us to focus in on his name, Emmanuel. We're told in the text, the rest of verse 25, you may be having parenthetical marks there. It's in the scripture. It says, which means God with us. Some of you are named Michael. You might go by Mike. Michael actually comes from a Hebrew word that means who is like God. Others of you here are named Daniel, common name in Miami. Also comes from a Hebrew word that means God is my judge. That'll make you sit up straight. Others of you ladies are named Elizabeth, which by translation comes from words that mean my God is an oath. Others of you are named Susan, which is a shortened version of Suzanne, which ironically in its term means lily. That sounds beautiful. My name, Eric, does not trace its way back to anything Hebrew. It's Nordic. It just means simply something like ruler, mic drop. (laughs) Don't blame me. Blame my parents. But Jesus, Jesus' name is going to be Emmanuel. Now, that's not the only name. Obviously, we know him as Jesus, a Greek version of Yeshua, God saves. But I want you to think about this one word, Emmanuel, and think about what a doorway it is into how God is, into who we are, and the wonder of what he has done. I mean, let's just, for a moment, think with me about Jesus' deity. Jesus' godness. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says, he was in the form of God. He's not less God, he is fully God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You don't get JV deity, you get fullness of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, for in him the whole fullness of of deity dwells bodily, meaning he is fully human like you, like me, sick and tired and all those expressions, as it says in Hebrews, like an interceding high priest who is sympathetic to us, and yet he is fully God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, in these last days, referring to God the Father, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We often think about what it would be like to inherit money from somebody that we don't know that we're related to. Jesus inherits the whole world because the whole thing he created. That's Jesus' deity, and yet the story of Jesus' arrival is saturated with humility. God with us. Think if, we, if you would have for a minute here with me. The baby? I mean, in one sense, you're like, okay, if he's going to be born as a human, he's got to become human. Okay, get that. But, but, but baby in a manger? 
that's, that's not where we put royalty. That's not where honor is placed. Born in a scandalous environment, born seemingly relationally alone, mother and stepfather Joseph, his attendants coming to his side is not balloons from the party center city visiting him. It's, it's actually shepherds who don't smell the best and certainly are not of any notoriety. The mother to the place, to the circumstances, to the people. This is why it says so richly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Humility of Jesus is shocking because it seems so disorienting. Let's go back to the celebrity sighting. We expect people who are famous, who are very wealthy, to have a sense of insulation in society between us and them. I've got to imagine it's exhausting being a well-known musician like Taylor Swift being a well-known actor like Leonardo DiCaprio. I've got to imagine that's not actually a fun life to live. You might think, oh, it's fun to be well-known and accomplished, but, like, but, but there's no place by which you can go that people just don't know you. I think it'd actually be better to be like the directors, the producers, because you get to make all the money and no one gets to see you. Like, no one cares. about it. Like, You can just shop normally. But everywhere you go, you, you have this little thing, and you're worried about your, like, your safety, your security, your privacy. People want to take pictures, they want to ask for autographs all the time, endlessly. And so there's this sense of understanding that I would recognize they, they probably get all their food delivered to them. They probably have people go shop for them. They, they probably get, like, you know, private tutors brought to their kids. They probably get private instructors brought to their place so they can get these because to go out in the society is just too much. And honestly, I don't know that I could say that I would judge them for that. We're impressed that Lionel Messi shops at Publix because Publix seems so normal to us. I'm asking you to consider that God who created the world was born in a manger attended by animals, surrounded by shepherds with the intention to not be served but to serve. He would later say in his ministry that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. We think about humility. We think about how contrasting it is to the ancient world. The ancient world honored many virtues like courage and wisdom, but not humility. In fact, one Greek philosopher who was born not soon after, not long after, rather, Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension by the name of Plutarch, this Greek philosopher, he wrote by kind of modern-day vernacular a self-help book. It wasn't called that back then, but by our standards, that's what it'd be called. And here was the title of his work, How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. It was teaching you how to think more of yourself appropriately. 
And this is kind of what we think about today, right? You, you can't love someone unless you love yourself. You got to take care of yourself first. And you got to, you know, me self. And I've got to work on myself first. Historian John Dixon writes, quote, it is unlikely that any of us would aspire to this virtue referring to humility were it not for the historical impact of his crucifixion. Our culture remains cruciform long after it stopped being Christian, end quote. Here's where I want us to make sure we don't make a mistake. Here's the mistake that could be made. To acknowledge and be impressed by the humility of Jesus. The deity becoming humanity as like the ultimate example of humility by which we could commend him, be surprised by him, as if he's simply a role model to imitate that we, maybe though far behind him in replication, could imitate some of that more ourselves. You go back to Matthew chapter 1, it's what's said two verses before that gives all of this meaning. Referring to Mary, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Humility is a virtue that most people, not all, but most people today appreciate and value in others and aspire to within themselves. But humility that's detached from honesty about your true personhood fails to reach the accurate assessment of your need for humility. Jesus came not to be an example. He came to be a savior. To save people from their sins. That's literally what it says in the text. Here's, if you could sort of summarize the point here, the main point, deity becomes humanity not only teaches us about his humility, but it should also teach us about the need for ours. Say that again. Deity become humanity not only teaches us about his humility, but it should also teach us about the need for ours. Friends, this is why we have any hope to be able to reconcile our relationships with each other. Spouse to spouse, parent to child, employer to employee, childhood friend to childhood friend. It's only when we have the humility to recognize in ourselves, not just a practice, but a position, who we are, as rebels against God who have sinned and broken his holy law, that we in solidarity, therefore, can identify with those who have sinned against us because we too have sinned against others, if not them, then others, that we can see we all need the same solution. Someone who will save us. But the least place we expected to find it is in a manger. 
But that's exactly where God gave it. Not only in the example, but in the sacrifice that would come. Thinking of his humility, it would say later in a text that we've referenced part of in Philippians chapter 2. To continue with the text, he says in verse 6, referring to Jesus, Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found and born in the likeness of men. And here's a key, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the that above that, above that, excuse me, above every name, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Spoiler alert. Everyone acknowledges Jesus as king as Lord, sooner or later. But not everyone knows him as Savior. Only those who have acknowledged their need for a rescuer, for redemption, for pardon, for forgiveness, who have turned from their sins and put their faith alone in Christ alone. It's not only in his humility of his birth, It's also in humanity that he obeyed all of the law perfectly and then died sacrificially on the cross as a substitute for all those who would ever believe in him. This is exactly the most famous verse of what it teaches in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would be forgiven, would have eternal life. And then he would resurrect from the grave three days later. Without that resurrection, our faith would be in vain. Friends, The reality is the necessity of not only humility in its birth, but also in its life, in its death, its resurrection, for the promised return to come. Do you know that there is a congregation started a little over a decade ago called Sunday Assembly? You might think uh, this is like a a non-denominational church. Uh, They started meeting every week, then went to then the first and third Sunday of the month. They get together, starting first in London, England, to enjoy community together. They now have 40 groups around the world called Sunday Assembly. But they're not there to worship. This is a group of people who are atheists, humanists, agnostics. Now, you might ask the question, why would they do that? Why would they gather together, even on Christmas, to have a a sing-along? According to their head of music, Emma Broomfield, quote, singing is a great way to build community because it often brings strangers together to work toward a common goal. She goes on to say, and if you're not a part of a religion and you're not a part of a choir, there are not many opportunities to sing communally. 
Explaining why they meet together regularly, the answer is given, quote, because people want to feel like they're a part of community. And when they gather, people sing songs, hear inspiring talks, and create community together in a family-friendly and inclusive setting. Boy, does that sound like a church. And yet, to their own acknowledgement, without any Jesus. I wonder if there's anybody here that wishes they were there. Can I have the communal gathering? Can I have the communal singing? Can I have the Christmas sentimentality without Jesus? You can. You can. But then you won't have a savior. And if you don't have a savior, then that means you have to do what I don't think you're ready to do which is to give an account to God whenever you die, sooner or later, and everyone dies, to give an account to God for your sins. You know it by your conscience. You know it by other people's confrontation of you. You see it in the world around you. And friends, I'm inviting you to see that the community of people that gather here are not gathering out of tradition and out of sentimentality and out of some type of generic communal activity. We're gathering here to praise God for sending his son. And for those of us who believe that and have surrendered a life to that, then friends, let me ask you to renew your vow to humility and how we then live together in community. That we love one another. We gladly prefer others before ourselves. We willingly, though sometimes not wantingly, we willingly forgive one another because the Lord in Christ has forgiven us. That is why each of us can say sincerely and meaningfully, Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.